welcome back to Butter With That, a movies podcast in Philadelphia where some friends come together to talk about all things movie, lots of entertainment, um, the good, the bad, and we are focusing our new theme on uh, what we're calling Director's Spotlight. Uh, each of us have picked a different director, maybe a longtime visionary or director we've admired or somebody you know whose work is a little newer to us. Uh, but before we jump into that, I am joined today by Dave and Christine. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Doing pretty good. Doing okay. Um, been up to the usual, back at work. I've been watching some interesting stuff lately. I just uh, had the pleasure with uh, my housemates uh, watching a movie called Love on a Leash. This is a movie about a, uh, a man who is uh, trapped in the body of a dog uh, via some kind of like reincarnation accident. And uh, as a result, uh, can only be transformed back into a man by the love of uh, the true love of a uh, of uh, a woman played by uh, Jenna Camp. Uh, it's a movie by uh, Fen Tian, um, released in 2011. The whole thing's on YouTube. Uh, it's, I mean, it's terrible. It's a really, really bad movie that like, you know, is a bad movie. Like I knew that going in, but it's pretty astonishing. Um, the sound levels all, are all over the place. Uh, and they got sued by the, uh, the person that composed the score for the movie. So, if no one's saying anything, it's dead silence throughout the whole movie. And it's so unnerving and strange. Why did the person who wrote the score sue? I don't know the details of that. I just know there was some lawsuit to the effect that they couldn't use the score that they planned for the movie. So it has no score at all. And it's pretty much just like, it has the feeling of like, if you've ever seen a recut footage of like a 90s sitcom absent the laugh track, it's kind of that same feeling. It's very just like awkward and unnerving. Uh, very stupid, bad movie, but it was really, uh, I mean, it was really enjoyable, uh, to watch with other people. It was, uh, a fun, dumb ride. That's like when I was watching the Twilight Saga with some friends and decided to waste time on YouTube looking up outtakes and, like, uh, B-roll <laughs> for all mm -hmm. of the Twilight movies, and there's no music, and, it's, and there's no, like, uh, setting. Like, the in interior shots are just, like, green screen, and it's uh, it's stripping all of the movie making techniques away from a scene, and you're left with just some some vampire lumps on the log. <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty wild. That that always kind of reminds me of just how like crazy movies are. Of like you have a bunch of people standing around, sometimes just in a green void with no music and like cut, cutting and you know very segmented filming, out of sequence filming. It's just incredible that we even get coherent movies in general like it's just its own kind of magic it is movie movie magic something i watched recently was the just released three-part short doc sasquatch on hulu oh right uh i i recommend it it's fascinating especially uh for the butter with that crew because the whole setting is met in mendocino california which is like every part of this documentary reminded me of Quiet Cool because it ah. focuses on a really gruesome murder that happened uh, of people working on like a weed farm in the early 1990s. And initially the investigation is, was it a Sasquatch? Like it was reported as this rumor that a Sasquatch had killed them. And what begins is this exploration into the lore and legends of Sasquatch in that area in Northern California turns into a really pretty incisive and interesting investigation of that region and unsolved murders that had been happening 
for a long time in that area. Uh, and I don't want to give too many things away. It isn't perfect. There were some issues I had with it, but it's really fascinating. The Duplass brother, Duplass brothers produced it and they're oh, the ones who yeah. did Wild Wild Country. Mm-hmm. And it was bizarre because I was just talking to some friends like a couple weeks ago being like, you know what I would love right now is just like another Wild Wild Country doc just to like sweep me away. This one didn't sweep me away as much as Wild Wild Country did, but it's definitely fascinating and I just kept thinking about Quiet Cool the entire time I was watching it. <laughs> it's a place, but not here. <laughs> Go back and see our previous episode on that. That's like our fourth episode. That's fifth, actually. A, that was our in our infancy. Our the first movie we all watched together. Yeah, that yep. was so nice. Uh, I watched Mortal Kombat, and I thought it was a delight. Yeah. It gave me exactly what I was kind of looking for. A lot of like, I think he did a good job, like incorporating like actual moves in the game into like real sort of like martial arts techniques. I thought everybody, <clears throat> costume wise, effect wise, makeup wise, looked great. Um, it's not a great story. I don't think Mortal Kombat has ever had like a great story in the games that I played, but I thought they did justice with the character designs and the move set and the final fight at the end between. Um, I don't know. It's in all the trails. Scorpion and Sub Zero is absolutely incredible. The best part of the movie by far. And so, I think this is a really exciting start to maybe what could be a new series where they just kind of keep getting better and better, and the scripts get more and more polished. But I would overall recommend Mortal Kombat. I'm looking forward to checking it out. I still haven't gotten to it as of uh, the date of this recording, and. Uh, have heard very mixed things. This uh, obviously being one of the better endorsements, Connor. I've uh, I've also heard that from other people. Uh, I've heard uh, though that yeah, the plot uh, from other people. I've heard that the plot is so kind of like haywire that it really kind of doesn't hold their attention. So mixed reviews. I, I feel like it's one of those things where if you go into it with the mindset of like, oh, this is going to have some great action sequences, uh, then you're probably going to be satisfied. So that I think is how I'm approaching it. And they, I think. Maybe one of the best things the movie does is like walk that line of like camp, but it's still like the character, like this, the movie is taking itself seriously, um, which I think is like a, a tough line to balance between like you're just cutting the air out of all the tension in the movie by being silly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the camp was pretty on point. All right. So let's jump into um, our next episode about uh, director spotlight. It's funny going second. I don't think I've ever gone second um, in a rotation, which is kind of yeah, fun to switch it up. So my director spotlight, I don't know if this would be surprising for anybody listening, but it is Akira Kurosawa, uh, the legendary, uh, the GOAT, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, uh, legendary Japanese director um, who has really had a, prolific is really the first word that comes to mind when I think of Kurosawa, prolific, influential. And so today we are talking about one of his more famous movies, Throne of Blood. And This was actually the first Kurosawa movie that I saw maybe a month and a half ago. Kind of as we were, you know, we plan our themes pretty far in advance sometimes, usually. And so, you know, a couple months out when we were thinking about what, you know, we're going to be doing late April, early May. I was like, oh, what if I did Kurosawa? Like I've been wanting to. And they, you know, watch some of his movies. And a lot of them are on Amazon and HBO Max right now. So Throne of Blood, as of this recording, uh, is on HBO Max. And so I thought this would be a great time to check it out really fell in love with it and really wanted to bring it to the group. It's also on uh, Criterion as well as a lot of his other works. Oh, nice. I've never had Criterion. I should probably look at it. It's a good investment. Mm -hmm. 
another streaming service to add to the credit card. <laughs> yeah, if we're saving so much money not using cable, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess before we dive into, I guess, thinking of how I would structure my director spotlight episode, start by, you know, kind of getting your guys' read on Throne of Blood, and then kind of going into kind of what the movie itself is, going into Kurosawa's biography up until Throne of Blood, and then kind of just diving into the movie. Awesome. So have you guys seen 1957's Throne of Blood before? Uh, I had never seen it before, no. And so what were your kind of your thoughts, or I guess Kurosawa in general, have you guys ever seen any Kurosawa films before? I have. I, I have. Uh, and I hadn't watched one since high school. And I was hmm. like, what was that Kurosawa movie I watched? And then when I was researching some notes for this discussion, I realized that Ikiru was the movie I had watched. I knew the plot. It was about an old bureaucrat in uh, a Japanese bureaucrat who's sort of thinking about his life as he's sort of uh, reconciling being just diagnosed with cancer uh, or, or he's, he's dying. I can't remember the spe- uh, specifics of it, but um, beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, and I'm excited to talk about Throne of Blood because things that I really loved about that movie, like framing um, moments of silence versus uh, use of sound, I think are so on display in Throne of Blood um, and also just really intense moving depictions of like like anguish as well. Um, but yeah, I, I was like, okay, now it's all coming together. And I think he completed Akiru around the same time as Throne of Blood. I think within a year, I think apart. Akiru is uh, 52. Oh, fi- oh, so it was yeah. before. A couple, okay. couple years before, yeah. Okay. Uh, but still, I guess, around that mid-50s uh, 50s period. Anyhow, that's my background on uh, Kurosawa. Yeah, I had, like, some uh, some knowledge of his work. I had seen um, I've seen Seven Samurai. I've seen uh, The Hidden Fortress. Um, I saw this, uh, this movie that he wrote the story for that had a different director. Uh, that's um, Andre Konchalovsky. There we go. It's a movie called Runaway Train. Uh, that's st- and I've recommended it on the show before. That's starring uh, John Voight and Eric Roberts. Um, you did bring that, that movie up on Butter With That. Which is, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that it's, uh, it's a Kurosawa movie because it really does smack of his, uh, his kind of like... Um, almost like mythic uh, figure character writing and like uh, opposing interests and uh, like uh, and competing influences and so on. Um, so I thought that movie was really great. And I thought all the other movies I've seen of his were really great. So I went into Throne of Blood with high expectations and uh, was not dissatisfied at all. I mean, it's a fantastic movie uh, from start to finish. It's, you know, it's cinematography uh, and it's, it's a uh, set design, uh, how immersive the, the movement of camera is and how, interestingly composed a majority of the shots are if not all the shots are um is really pretty breathtaking uh so much so that i mean i i think this is the highest compliment that i can give a movie as like a podcaster talking about movies is that i don't have a lot of notes because i really kind of just fell into it but i'm sure that as we discuss it i'm gonna have a lot of thoughts that uh that remind me of the movie and uh that really bring up how much i i really appreciated it on the the first go around and i'm definitely planning on watching it again soon uh so if that's any insight into uh how i felt about it yeah I, th- I thought it was pretty great. Well, that's glad to hear. And I realized that I um, that I just lied 
that I had wow. seen a Kurosawa film before, which is how I knew about him, uh, was his 1985 epic classic, Ron. Ron, yeah, you recommended that on the uh, 100, uh, 100 movies. It was, it was in my top 20 movies, so I'm just a liar, everybody. You can <laughs> I'm a liar in emails or social media. Uh, yeah, so I watched Ron in high school uh, in an English class, in a Shakespeare English class, because Ron is um, inspired by Shakespeare's King Lear. And mm. so it's interesting, I just recently rewatched Ron the other day, and then recently also doing a deep dive into Throne of Blood and taking notes during it. So many comparisons, um, maybe outside the scope of this episode, but definitely those two movies decades apart still speak to each other really meaningfully. And I'm glad that you guys brought up so many ideas of camera work, cinematography, sound, because we're all going to be getting into that. Yeah, there's so, so much before, to dive into with that, with this movie. Mm-hmm. So just a little bit about Throne of Blood was released in 1957, uh, directed and co-written by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, This was inspired by William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Um, Shakespeare first apparently arrived to Japan, like his works, in like 1868. So for quite a long time, Shakespeare has been available to read in uh, Japan. I don't know when it was first translated into Japanese. Uh, and so in a little bit, you know, I'll get into his biography, but Kurosawa was, has been heavily in his, you know, youth was influenced by Western culture, theater, painting, film. So all sorts of different Eastern and Western, you know, mediums. And so Shakespeare was a big influence for him. And he actually wanted to release a um, Macbeth adaptation, but Orson Welles' um, 1930, uh, 1943 adaptation, uh, when he got wind of that, Kurosawa shelved this idea. And then came back to it uh, about a decade later. So yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to wait. I feel like Orson Welles would tell Kurosawa to wait. It's my time to shine. That would probably be an awkward conversation, also, if you know anything about Orson Welles. <laughs> I mean, if, God, I'm just saying that would be such an interesting meeting. Just put two of them in a room. What would happen? So, as I mentioned, released in 1957, uh, and apologies from here on out for how I'm doing my best to pronounce Japanese names. I've never studied Japanese, uh, so I'll do my best to give accurate pronunciation. So apologies if I slip up on any pronunciations. Um, So the lead of Throne of Blood is Toshiro Mifune, uh, who starred in 15 Kurosawa films in total. So a very important collaborator. Um, for Kurosawa. And he stars as Washizu Taketoki, who is our Macbeth um, in this story. Isuzu Yamada um, plays his wife, uh, Asaji, our Lady Macbeth. Takashi Shimura as um, Noriyasu, who is our Macduff. And then um, Minoru Chaikai, who is uh, Miki Yashokai, our Banquo in this story. So those are kind of the leading characters. Um, And overall, this is a very faithful adaptation to Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. A really terrible movie starring Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, um, which maybe we'll talk about one day on the pod. But Macbeth is one of my favorite plays, and it is very faithful to the source material. And for those unfamiliar with Throne of Blood, unfamiliar with Macbeth, here's sort of just a brief plot description. So Throne of Blood centers around General Wasizu, a samurai commander under Lord Tezuki, who reigns from a castle uh, in the spider's web forest, which, you know, 
great name for a castle in a forest. After a victorious battle, Washizu, along with his best friend, General Miki, uh, Miki, get lost in a forest, trying to return to Lord Tezuki's castle, where they encounter a spirit who tells Washizu and uh, Miki that they're, uh, you know, tells them their futures, uh, which is an analog to the witches in Macbeth. Uh, these spirits tell Washizu and Miki that, or tell Washizu that he will be named the Lord of the Northern Garrison, and that uh, Miki will become commander of the first fortress. That's the first prophecy. Then the spirit goes on to foretell that Washizu will eventually become the lord of the forest castle himself, and that Miki's son will become lord of that castle after Washizu. Uh, though doubtful, the first prophecy actually ends up coming true later that night, and Washizu plots with his wife Asaji to take the throne for themselves. Along the way, the lord is murdered by Washizu and Asaji. Uh, Washizu names Miki's son his heir, since they have no children, until Asaji tells Washizu that she's pregnant and an assassin is sent after Miki and his son. Miki's son lives, but Washizu's son is stillborn. With his life falling apart and haunted by the spirit of Miki, Washizu confronts the forest spirit again, who tells him that he won't be defeated in battle until, quote, the trees of the spider's web forest rise against the castle. Confident he can't lose because trees do not move, he is taken unawares when the invading army cuts the trees down to the forest and moves them as cover as they approach the castle. With his own army rising up against him, Washizu has lost it all and is killed by his own men. So spoiler alerts for a hundreds of year old play. <laughs> spoiler alert for a decades old film. So that is uh, Throne of Blood. I'm really glad to hear you guys liked it. And I just want to dive into just a brief kind of little biography of Akira Kurosawa. So over the course of his 57 years as a filmmaker, he directed 30 films, um, sometimes two films in one year which is kind of crazy to think about. And as I'll mention in a little bit, he pretty much had a hand in every part of the filmmaking process. There are only a handful of Kurosawa movies that he directed that he also did not co-write. So he co-wrote pretty much all of these 30 movies as well. Um, from his debut feature in 1934, Judo Saga, he, as I mentioned, more or less directed movies every year until the 1960s. Um, so prolific, really the best way to begin to describe his body of work. Akira Kurosawa was born on March 23rd in 1910 in Tokyo. His father, Isamu, and his mother, Shima, encouraged education as a really important value from a young age and opened Kurosawa to Western culture and media. His parents valued theater, painting, and culture as a cornerstone of somebody's education, and he watched his first motion picture when he was six years old. Uh, you know what it was? Does it say? No, it didn't say. Uh, okay. Uh, it would have been a silent film, though. I was going to say, it would have been 1916. What was hot then? <laughs> and what would have made it over to Japan? Yeah, right. Like Buster Keaton or something? Maybe. So a major childhood incident for Kurosawa was the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923, really devastating earthquake uh, in the Kanto region. When he was 13 years old, his brother um, Hego, you know, was with him at the site. And uh, when young Akira wanted to look away, um, his brother kind of forced him to say, no, you sort of have to take this in. You can't look away from this, um, of the bodies that were there, the carcasses, you know, 
Um, Heiko forbade him from looking away, encouraging Akira uh, to face his fears and confront them directly. And some commentators have suggested that this incident would influence Kurosawa's you know, artistic career as a director, uh, who was seldom hesitant to confront unpleasant truths in his work. So really inspiring him or encouraging him to confront the harsh realities of the world. Uh, during his teens and 20s, he lived with his older brother, who was a, a narrator for silent films, and together they um, consumed a variety of Japanese and Western media. With the rise of talkies in the 1930s, um, Hago lost his job, and Akira moved back in with his parents in 1933, um, after which some time uh, Higo actually took his own life, and then later um, his older brother died as well. So a lot of tragedy in young Kurosawa's life. Uh, in 1935, Photochemical Laboratories, which would later become the famous Toho Studio, uh, put out a job posting for assistant directors. Even though Kurosawa did not have any filmmaking experience or really expressed interest in filmmaking as a career, he submitted an application along with a, the required essay explaining the deficiencies in Japanese cinema and how to overcome those deficiencies. Part of his answer was if the deficiencies were so fundamental to Japanese cinema, that there was no way of overcoming them. This cheeky, half-joking answer actually earned him an interview. And at the age of 25, he became an assistant director at PCL, later Toho Studio. Uh, his first major you know, debut as a director was Drunken Angel in 1948. Uh, he worked steadily during World War II and the occupation years um, after the war. Uh, but this, you know, and he worked, so he worked steadily. And so, you know, Drunken Angel, 1948 after the war. It's a gritty story about a doctor trying to save a Yakuza from tuberculosis, and this really catapulted him into the mainstream. Uh, and fun fact, he actually had to rewrite and rework a lot of his scripts uh, in the post-war to comply with American censors, which I didn't know was a thing in occupied Japan, which I think makes a lot of sense. So that was something personally I wanted to look a little more into. His international breakout hit was Rashomon, which is probably a word that maybe a lot of people are familiar with, but didn't know where it originated from. And it came from Akira Kurosawa's breakout hit. Uh, this film is known for a plot device that involves various characters providing subjective, alternative, self-serving, and contradictory versions of the same incident. Uh, Rashomon was the first Japanese film to receive significant international reception, and it won several awards, including first place at the Venice Film Festival in 1951. And it also received an Academy Honorary Award at the 24th Academy Awards in 1952, and is considered one of Kurosawa's greatest films. And the Rashomon effect is named after this film. Um, one of the more famous recent uses of this kind of varying perspective storytelling technique is in, I believe, season four of Arrested Development is maybe where a lot of people would have encountered this too. That's not an unfortunate example. Yeah, to a effect. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, the style of the same story, but seen from individual different viewpoints. Um, well, we're going to kind of return back to that later on in our theme month. I won't say anything more, but... Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. A little hint. It's Arrested Development season four, everybody. <laughs> so he continued uh, to write and direct and release a lot of uh, really well-known films, including Seven Samurai in 1954, Throne of Blood, 1957, and The Hidden Fortress in 1958, which would go on to be a huge influence for Star Wars, George Lucas and Spielberg, you know, in a little Big bit. Later, what'd you say? 
I said big time. Big time, indeed. And later on, we'll talk about how actually Lucas and Spielberg kind of went to help Kurosawa in the later part of his career, um, which is an interesting story. So real quick, Kurosawa has a very sort of distinct style. And I think it's interesting that there's 30 movies that um, his whole career. So it's kind of hard to like say these are the three things that he does all the time because he has such a huge body of work. Uh, But he was... Um, you know, known for a bold, dynamic style, embellishing, not always, you know, realistic, um, impressive sets, impressive costumes, and a lot of his historical pieces, um, use of contrast, and incorporations of Western themes into Japanese cinema. Uh, he's also known for camera zooming in, zooming out, creative uses of cameras and how scenes are set up, and uh, wipe transitions as well, which is, if you've ever seen a Star Wars movie, George Lucas used all the time. Instead of Mm -hmm. just fading to black, the screen wiping away left or right, which is used a lot in Throne of Blood. Some themes that pop up for Kurosawa, you know, this is just a little (laughs) list of them. Uh, Weather is a a dramatic device and symbols of human passion. Cycles of savage violence, which Throne of Blood kind of really begins this trend. For Kurosawa as the protagonist not being a good guy, um, power dynamics, master, you know, apprentice relationships. So really big sort of mythic ideas um, in a lot of his work that Kurosawa tries to tackle. And also how can moments and movement convey feeling? How does the camera enhance the scene? These are sort of questions that I think about with his choices and his thematic styles. And he also likes to use large crowds and really sometimes creative blocking choices. Cool. So with all that out of the way, uh, we'll get to the later part of Kurosawa's life kind of after we're done talking about Throne of Blood. But I figured we just kind of jump in, kind of go through the movie blow by blow, because um, I think there's so much to talk about that this kind of seemed like a way to make sense going through some of the major scenes. So we go through every every sling and every arrow, all of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so every- many arrows. <laughs> and they're real arrows. Those are yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's crazy. We'll get to that. So the opening of this movie um, is so incredibly dramatic, so incredibly memorable, <clears throat> and really kicks off a lot of the theatrical connections uh, between Shakespeare's Macbeth and Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. We open with the fog on a desolate volcanic landscape, uh, and there's chanting, which is very similar um, you know, kind of to a lot of musical choices in the no style of theater, uh, which was another huge influence, uh, which was a huge influence for Kurosawa. Um, No is essentially, I believe it's the oldest continuous form of theater still practiced today, Mm -hmm. like never in like a continuous practice um, where actors, some actors wear masks and each mask is associated with a specific character. And no is all about, you know, instead of playing to the back seats using very subtle, Um, You know, facial gestures, enhanced physical movements to convey emotion, convey how people are feeling and, you know, without a lot of facial expressions, inviting the audience into the character to sort of imagine how that character's feeling instead of telegraphing everything big and broad and obvious. So we'll definitely talk about nose influence as we go throughout. Um, So just in the very opening with this group chanting about vanity and pride and how there's a man still a ghost still wandering the halls where this castle stood on this volcanic field how does this work as an opening to throne of blood for you christine and dave i mean the 
the fog. I mean, the like obviously all of his visual language, like Kurosawa's visual language, is so wonderful and rich. But um, like this, these this desolate land with just so much fog, just sets the state. Like you know, it's a it's a play, but also you have this fascinating. It was it was shot on the side of Mount Fuji. Yeah, as you the volcano. I see your notes about the volcanic sand which I also think is wonderful since it's in black and white and you have this like dark volcanic sand as a setting and then kind of the white fog coming through. I mean, it's just stunning. It's just like beautiful and it's spooky. It's so wonderfully spooky too and and really sets the tone for um, ghosts, spirits, uh, portending things to come and just uh, all of the wonderful Macbeth uh, feelings. Yeah, especially for like an introductory, uh, an introductory sequence, it definitely lends itself to the, like the Shakespearean ghosts and uh, and how that runs through. You know, obviously like uh, Macbeth, Hamlet, uh, a bunch of other works, and and, and transposes it against you know a, a Japanese uh, setting in a, in a really impactful way in in terms of just stripping it of like. And I think this movie does this across the board, as even with its dialogue and with uh, a lot of its. Um, a lot of his truncating of of uh, some of this story, Macbeth in particular, of kind of like boiling down, boiling away like the uh, Shakespearean language and facade of his work and just getting to the core issues, which I think this movie does really well. And I think in the, at that opening onset does really well because we have, uh, as we said, that kind of like chanted narrative um, explaining, uh, you know, someone's vanity, how it was their downfall and so on. As we see... Uh, this grave kind of emerged through the fog. So it really kind of like in an elliptical way um, tells us what we can expect of the movie and the story in, in some pretty powerful ways, especially Christine, as you pointed out, as concerns like the, uh, the contrast of the shot, um, that dark volcanic sand versus the, uh, the flowing uh, clouds of the space and, and then being actual like clouds and fog because they were shooting on a mountain, which he insisted because he felt the fog machines weren't convincing enough. So, like, at, right at the onset, a really impressive introductory sequence that sets a tone not only for the grandeur of the story that we already know, but the grandeur of this interpretation and the cinematic expectations that we can look forward to via via the direction. For sure. I don't think I could have said that better myself. And that grandeur uh, leads to one of the coolest moments in the entire film is you see the fog kind of roll over in front of the camera and then I've watched the scene a couple times. It's so hard to tell where they cut to then the castle that they built, the set mm. being revealed, which used to be on the land that is now in the, I guess, present day, uh, desolate. But back in the day was this impressive forest castle that a lot of the story is going to take place in. And that scene, you know, I remember just watching it and that just like blew me away of like, this is 1957. How are you pulling off some tricks? Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Like which the movie does a lot of really cool camera work and editing, which Kurosawa was also heavily involved in the editing of his own movies. So um, just a great, as you mentioned, reveal. So inside of this castle, there is a somber meeting beginning with indecision uh, at the ruling Lord's council. Um, there's a rebellion happening and then various messengers arrive telling the, you know, sort of like this indecision. And then these messengers arrive sort of saying like, Oh, this castle is, you know, actually fall in a row, this, you know, uh, Shizu and Miki are actually taking it back over in this series of messengers coming to say, hell, oh, basically the day is saved. And when I first watched the movie, I was sort of like, oh, this scene is kind of 
going on really long or like kind of holding on these still shots of these men and you know this black armor being indecisive about what to attack but i really appreciated the length of time it takes um, just to show of like, really nobody knows it, kind of exactly what's going on. I don't know if that's like thinking about like bureaucracy or decision-making, but that sort of resonated with me of like one guy, one general wants to attack, the other general wants to defend. And then it's really um, the actions of General Washizu and uh, General Mickey who kind of turned the day and then basically saved the Lord and his council from making a decision. All set with this like beautiful Japanese architecture inside this castle that they built for the movie. Um, so the castle, so just some production notes real quick, the castle exteriors were built on the side of Mount Fuji, and they actually used uh, the U.S. Marine Corps that was stationed near there um, to help them build it, which is kind of funny. Did you see some of the photographs of the crew? Like, uh, I like I think on, like, Wikipedia, or if you look up the production, there's some wonderful just, like, behind-the-scenes photo of the crew and, like, their regular clothes um, like on a, like what looks like a military vehicle, just like, like moving out about, it's just a nice little glimpse into what it would have been like, uh, on a Kurosawa set anyhow. <laughs> and what it took to build an enormous oh. actual kind of fortress. Yeah. 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 Huge, huge effort. And the sets are incredible. I mean, throughout the movie, all, all the fortresses are so incredibly rendered. Um, as we'll get to like the more mysterious spaces within the forest are really interestingly rendered. So it's, it's like, a uh, really like heightened acuity and attention to set design and and really placing you in a scenario. Connor, I did think it was really interesting that you said that, that you felt that that sequence went on a little long uh, because I did feel kind of like it's pacing, I think in a pretty pronounced way, like when the first guy shows up and it sounds like kind of a lost cause or uh, they're on the defensive. Mm-hmm that guy goes on for like kind of a while and then like the next guy shows up and he goes on for a little bit it's like no you know what i just got back from there it's uh it's not that bad we, we kind of got things under control then another guy shows up and it's just like no it's fine we, we we got this and then another guy's just like yeah it's all good and it just starts going like it the the pace of like their correspondence and them reporting back gets sped up in a way that feels to me like uh an awareness of the material they're working with and saving time mm-hmm. Which is, you know, it's really great and really smart because you don't really lose anything in speeding that up. I don't think, at least not, at least not for me. And in fact, I found it to be almost like one of the more comical moments of the movie as it just becomes increasingly realized that though they don't know exactly what's going on, it seems like things are getting more and more under control. It, it feels a little farcical. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll definitely probably return back to this idea of extending scenes in almost a farcical way to the fog scene Hmm. uh when they're like uh uh, washizu and his friend i can't remember his name are like running through the four on horseback trying to get out of this fog and it goes on forever (laughs) and you're like at a point you're like Am I missing something? Why do they keep? But it but it reinforces this idea of disorientation and just like com- the fact that they are extremely lost. And you're like, I know we're in good hands, and I know that Kurosawa has set up an expectation that if he wants to extend a shot or extend a scene, it's for a very very uh, calculated and specific reason. Um, Intentionality, yeah, it yeah. rings through the whole movie, yeah. I was um, thinking a little bit of P.T. Anderson What in this most recent rewatch of it, of just like shot length and moving cameras around and just some interesting similarities between directors separated by decades. 
mm-hmm. um, which I've talked more about later. So yeah, messengers arrived. Basically, the day is saved, um, and then uh, the Lord summons Washizu and Miki to his castle to bestow many wonderful honors on him because the rebellion has been stopped. Uh, and there's this little moment where it's suggested that the Lord executes one of the kind of rebel leaders, or maybe he's a rebel leader. Um, and then he says like, no, I'm going to like basically do it myself. And the idea is shelved. And then that sort of gets brought back. So there's lots of elements of these things set up in the beginning that circle back when we're at the end of act three. Mm-hmm. Um, Christine, and that was a great transition too, to bringing up the idea of the forest. So the spider's web forest, huge, important part of the, um, you know, the play, the movie because this is where uh Shizu and Miki get lost and they find the evil spirit uh the witch the hag it's called a few different names in this movie and in Shakespeare's Macbeth these were the three witches you know double double toil and trouble lots of famous lines come from them who give Macbeth and Banquo um the prophecy and so there's lots of lightning lots of rain rain is also a very common theme you know use in a lot of Kurosawa films Um, maybe gives a sense of, you know, everyone knows what kind of rain is like. It's very atmospheric. It adds a lot, especially in like, I don't know, black and white rain just feels different than watching a movie in color. Um, So just for me, that was just kind of very heavy rain, lots of lightning. And we hear this evil laugh um, coming out of the woods. And so that's where we see um, the witch, this evil demon, evil spirit, who is echoing similar verses to the chanting about pride and vanity that we heard uh, in the beginning of the movie. And she's like spinning this, I don't know exactly what you would describe, like a spinning wheel of thread. Um, Is it like a spindle? Is that? Yeah, I guess like a, like a, um, what's the fairy tale where she touches the, is that Rapunzel? uh, No, it's um, Sleeping Sleeping Beauty. Beauty, Yeah. There's some kind of thread spinning device. And so there's this old woman spirit there um, who foretells prophecies and I'm not sure if this was set up in a studio, but it still looks great transition from this like forest, they're running around on horses, actually riding horses through woods. Uh, the camera set behind trees as it's sort of moving around, panning around. That's um, something I really love too, is like, because it is set so far behind, like the, the foreground of the shot is basically like endless, an endless sea of like slightly unfocused branches that we're just getting glimpses of the two of them riding through further like accentuating visually that they are like ensnared in these woods. Mm-hmm. And there's this wonder, one wonderfully creepy shot where the camera is looking through the brambles, the unfocused brambles, and then the witch walk, like walks across the shot. Am I, do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's like the creepy, and it already we've been talking about the heightened black and white, like visual, uh, uh, yeah, I guess just this heightened black and white contrast. And when you see the witch, she's like glowing with this white fog. She's lit really, really well and freakily. (laughs) Uh, And it just adds to this mystery and this this ghost-like, in like feeling uh but 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 like i feel like what would be used to like make fun of ghost story movies later on of like a like a witch running across the the screen like kurosawa does it in a way that's like really really freaky and really wonderful and i think it's so easy to play this like character very broadly 
and like or just like very creepy or like she has pus and a giant nut like classical i guess like what we feel <laughs> like a halloween costume witch but this is so unsettling because it's human like but it's she is so still and is all you all she's really doing for most of her scene is just spinning her wheel and talking in sort of these verses uttering the prophecy maybe she um, runs the second time that's at they, the end oh okay mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, when, yeah 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 like how macbeth goes back to say i i can't lose please how can i like not die at the end of the story uh well she usually does the same thing and so she like runs looks oh right the, yeah, yeah 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 i'm way ahead of myself <laughs> i think it just <laughs> stuck in my mind that's <laughs> really scary but yeah i think you're like that's important connor is that in fact the first time we see her she's extremely still and all she's doing is like speaking in this very sinister low voice and the voice is, and yeah the voice is really cool because I, i'm pretty sure it's two synced vocal tracks where they're like almost an octave apart so it does create this other world to her voice uh and i think this is the witch the evil spirit is probably where the biggest influence of the no style of theater comes from. Cause it, at first when you're far away, it does look like she has a mask on, but as you zoom in uh, and as Washizu and Miki get closer, then like, Oh, this isn't, they even ask her like, are you a human? Can you like, you're talking to us. So like, who are you? What's your deal? And then she reveals the prophecy that essentially they're going to get promotions. Eventually Washizu is going to become Lord of the giant forest castle, basically King of the area but Mickey's son will replace him and become king himself, um, which is more or less identical to the witch's prophecy in Macbeth, mm-hmm. um, where Banquo's sons will, you know, he will father, you know, he will father generations of kings, uh, while Macbeth will only be this one-time king. So at first they kind of laugh it off, say this is sort of you know crazy, like what are you talking about? Um, and I think there's some really good small moments between them because we've only met them for a couple minutes at this point, but I already feel like there's a bit of a back and forth. Like we sort of see a friendship between them just through some of the subtleties in acting. And then uh, the spirit um, says, you humans, I will never comprehend you. You are afraid of your desires. You try to hide them. Cause what she's is like, no, this is the Lord's area. Like I'm not, you know, it's, you know, your traitor's talk is essentially what he's telling her. You know, this is, I'm not a traitor. Um, and then she stands, her robes fly off and then she just disappears all in like a really cool shot, very quick edit. Yeah, and, and then the camera kind of pans in to follow the two of them as they like walk a little further in the distance and then pans back. And by the time it's panned back, even the like kind of like a pale hut that she's erected in that area is gone as well. Which all is, in one shot. Yeah, which is really such thoughtful like set like set dressing and blocking and uh, knowing where to, to place things in frame such that they can be removed within a continuous shot. It's... It's pretty astounding. It also has a really great use of like a triangular composition with the two figures kind of uh, like an upside down triangular composition with the two figures standing uh, high in the shot. And she then seated, which is something that's repeated triangular vignettes and uh, composition so much throughout the movie and throughout his work. Those in like we'll get to it, but every single fucking interior frame and shot is just, oh, it's just so friggin good. So the the evil spirit's gone. Dave mentioned so cool, pulls in, pulls back. And then we see in the background, you see a skull here or there, but then the hut's gone. They further investigate. And then there are just these piles of skeletons, um, which never get addressed, but are so incredibly ominous and creepy. Just these huge mounds of hun- what is maybe even hundreds of skeletons 
Yeah. Um, assuming those are the people that the witch is lured in or the evil spirit. Um, Into the, the spider's web of the spider web forest. Oh, yes. So they leave the woods. They find their oh, way out. Sorry, one more thing. is oh, yeah. It's a wonderful visual uh, detail is that you see uh, Miki's and, and Washizu's flags uh, that they ride with. And they're, they're two different animals. Uh, Washizu's is a centipede. And Miki's is a rabbit, I believe. Hmm. And I think it's it's I think it's also to just detail they're from different uh, factions or or armies or whatever. They're just the leaders of different groups of people. But I think also it's a wonderful way of sort of establishing elements of their character uh, and kind of how they'll interact with other people and maybe what their sort of interior selves are like. But also the flags just look really cool uh, as they're riding with them uh, on their back, like attached to their backs. Mm-hmm. And they're black and white as well. And they're black and white as well, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Miki's is white primarily and uh, what she's is black. Yeah. Right. But um, just like centipede versus rabbit. And you're like, oh, I feel like I can get a lot from that. Oh, I didn't think about that. Good catch. Uh, and so they leave the forest and they're still trying to find the castle. And there's a very long scene of them running through the fog, which if I'm going to be honest, that felt a little repetitive. Like, I feel like we had a similar idea with the forest. And so this is also them. And you can't see any direction of what they're going. They're like left, right. And somehow they manage to find the castle. Well, that's what I love about it. Yeah, they're darting in like competing directions as far as like how one would traditionally frame like a sequence like that. Like normally you'd have, you probably would have like a left to right the whole time with each shot, um, but with like maybe further speed or more fog. But instead it's just like, it's more speed, it's more fog. And it, each time it's like coming in from a competing direction to further illustrate and further uh, further cement within our minds as an audience that they are like bolting it out of this uh, out of this kind of like weird experience with this spirit in these dark woods trying to get back to safety, but they're disoriented, they're lost, and it's it's really uh, it's really visualized really greatly through that sequence. So I, I'm glad I made the time for it personally. And we've we've talked about pacing like this in the context of comedy. It's like extending something beyond the expected length until mm-hmm. you enter a realm where you're like. WTF, I have no idea why this is being extended so long. I feel like to me, I laughed during this. So I don't I don't know if it was intended as comedic. Probably not. But I think if you were to look at it as a very dramatic showcase of ex- of an extended scene, it's like this is a huge turning point in the story. Two characters are given these prophecies. They're emerging from this otherworldly land. And like this long, long, long scene, as Dave said, reinforces how lost they are and really takes the viewer into like a new chapter and a, like a new understanding that things from now on are going to be really fucked up this tight friendship is going to be slowly deteriorate. All relationships will be deteriorating from here on out. (laughs) It also further lends to what I would describe as like a constant atmosphere, unease and eeriness throughout this movie, which is like, I mean, I've seen a few different Macbeths, but this is definitely the eeriest that I've ever seen. Uh, That's such a great transition, both of that into the scene, really the last moment of peace that we have in the story. 
um, between uh, Oshizu and Miki. They're tired. There's a mention that, oh, you've, you know, we went through three horses already on this journey or even just in the past couple days. So they're going to take a... Just a, burning through horses. Yeah, <laughs> four horses. So they're going to take a little rest. They're maybe, you know, two miles away from the, the fortress. And so they just have a moment to kind of debrief what they just saw, kind of laugh it off. Um, and then things sort of, you know, turn serious and they realize, oh, we should probably head to the castle where this ceremony is going to be taking place, which is just absolutely stunning. This is one of the greatest just shots, you know, maybe top 10 shots um, in any movie I saw of when they're entering the castle. We've had so much fog, so much daylight, even in the woods, like, you know, lots of white, but now it's like all dark except for the fire of the torches as Washizu and Miki march realizing like, oh, maybe, you know, prophecy, they're trying to forget it. But soon the prophecy is going to smack them in the face as they march up to the Lord. And the Lord bestows the um, northern garrison to Washizu, fulfilling his part of the prophecy. And then the, I believe, is the first castle to Miki. Maybe I messed those up, but uh, bestows the prophecy has uh, revealed. And then this is where we get one of the first really awesome expressions from Inafune, who is just like, who plays Oshizu, Macbeth, who's just like, oh my God, the realization of like this prophecy is coming true all with all these soldiers with torches burning and this beautiful nighttime set, the black armor of all the troops glistening. The um, crescents, the like uh, crescent moon shape uh, head pieces are so fucking stunning. They're so mm. beautiful. Um, yeah. Sorry. I had to throw that in there. I was like, Oh, and the, like when you see everyone in their full, like, like uniforms and then like uh, head pieces and everything, it's just, Oh God, it looks so good. And he wanted to go with black outfits to just further contrast with the white fog and the other set dressings. Um, so everything is sort of steeped in this heavy black, um, which is also emphasized in the great costumes. I didn't look up any colored photos, but I would love to see what these costumes look like um, in real life because there's so many and they're all so ornate and detailed. And the crescent head, uh, which I guess would have been like the, it, I mean, it signifies the the head guy, like the head guy and Washizu, spoiler alert, obviously gets it. <laughs> uh, but like, it also is positioned in his bedroom. Like you see it later on as sort of like this throne, uh, the sort of of the kingdom signifier. And it's just so, um, so visually prominent that you see it move from space to space as uh, people die and uh, ascend, you know, the ranks and things like that. But he just knows how to create something that looks really unique and then use it as a visual symbol for, uh, frames further down, like further along the movie. Well, and he's so good at like, I think a lot of times the camera is just a way for us to look at a scene when Kurosawa is like follows people or moves the camera, like cameras have specific movements or specific arcs in and of themselves within a scene of like revealing information, going up, going down, going side to side all in one shot. And he definitely places a lot of emphasis on that crescent moon, I guess, signet that's on top of the helmets. Yeah, and there's a really great bit of like the movement of the camera and its focus at the end of that sequence too, where like this is one of the scenes where, aside from like toward the end, where it's the most crowded with individuals and extras and like it's it's like a big, like they're before, you know, they're before this army and its leaders and it, it, it focuses really just on the two of them, especially as they're walking away, both kind of like shocked with 
the gravity of this uh, this prophecy from the spirit of the woods uh, kind of like coming to pass before their eyes. But a- as we follow them out uh, in the other direction from uh, from their leaders after having been given their commands and uh, essentially been given this kind of like promotion, uh, it just kind of focuses so heavily on the two of them as they make their way pe- through a large crowd of other individuals who are almost, uh, yeah, because they are dressed in and in, in, in framed in such darkness as opposed to like the two center figures. It does make it so much about their, the moment for these two figures and how important the prophecy is as concerns the two of them and how it's going to impact everyone and everything. Bingo. <laughs> exactly. Love it. Love the scene. One of Kurosawa's finest. Washizu, he's now in command of the North Castle. This is like a big promotion for him. And so now that him and Lady Asagi are in the North Castle, we get a glimpse, little vignette, which popped through. I had a hard time keeping track if these household guards or soldiers were the same ones we were looking throughout. Um, But it's great. And this also feels very theatrical of like little scene breaks of like these soldiers kind of filling in the audience about what the common man is thinking or sort of what's going on day to day or what's happened since then. So this happens like five times or four or five times. We get these little couple minute vignettes, sometimes even less of just what is happening in the castle outside of, you know, the people who are playing the game of Thrones. Yeah. Shakespeare loves using like servants as guards as like what's going on, not in the like higher ranks of these, Mm -hmm. like of this, castle but also using them as great ways to like fill in context or further the plot (laughs) and then it also just gives the fortress like a sense of life like kurosawa loves one of his techniques is like even if it's just wind or rain there's always something happening in the background something moving um to give scenes really a full sense of life and so in the background of the scene we're just about to talk about um they're riding horses and training um kind of all in the background of this Ordinary Life, which I think is a really great detail. Washizu comes out, everybody, you know, bows to him, and then he turns around, um, and this is where we get introduced to the Lady Macbeth, Asagi, Lady Asagi, um, Mm -hmm. who is great period makeup, um, and is such an interesting, like, take on Lady Macbeth, something where it's very easy to have her be, like, the conniving one who, you know, is the downfall of this great man. I feel like there's a lot of ways that character type could be played. Um, but I get the sense that she, and she's the one who initially pushes him to help fulfill this prophecy of like, these are her motivations that she's putting on um, with Shizu, which has been done with Lady Macbeth uh, before, but this just kind of feels um, so much different. And I love the editing on the move when Shizu turns around to confront Lady Asagi about killing his own master to take the castle forest. And so this is really when the plot um, gets kicked into motion. And I think sh- shows off even just how dynamic Kurosawa's dialogue scenes can be. Um, and how he's also masterful at scenes between two people in a room, just as masterfully of a crowd of a 200. I think also uh, the sound design in the scenes between Washizu and Asagi are is, is so good because Asagi doesn't have a whole bunch of lines. So it's like, and and I think it might be also shedding some light between the sort of power dynamics that would have been real power dynamics in that period between like like a high army captain and his wife. But the fact that Kurosawa chooses to keep the swoosh of her kimono in the in the like fr- or like of her outfit in that scene, you can hear the fabric 
like swooshing back and forth is like a to me a wonderful detail is like her presence is so powerful in these particular interior scenes and even when she's not talking like her movement her calculations are are present and are loud i just it, it was a at first i was like is that is that the fabric like what is that sound and then i was like and then in other interior scenes between them, I kept hearing it. And I was like, oh, that must have been kept in for a very, like, deliberate purpose. It's kind of her always haunting the space in a way. I like, yeah, 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 definitely haunting the space. That's a great way of putting it. Borrow a music term. It's sort of like her leitmotif. <laughs> this is like her sound of like her, this is, and... I didn't really sense too much of it in Throne of Blood, but another common thing that apparently Kurosawa would tell his actors is pick a physical tick or pick a movement or pick like something that you do to help. Like everybody kind of has their one thing, especially in these huge crowds, which a lot of movies have huge crowds that signify the main players and help keep track of people. So I just love the specificity of details of um, her kimono. She has a great line that says, this is a cruel world. To save yourself, you must often kill first. So mm -hmm. she is the one who's really heightening the state. And she saying, gets all the stingers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she really sees the worst in people and the worst uh, in people's intentions. Basically saying that this gift is, you know, this prophecy you know, Miki's going to use it against you. What if he tells the Lord, oh, he's got, you know, what she's do, you're going to be the Lord of the castle one day. You know, the Lord would probably think that that is treason, that that happened. And so it's sort of like, it feels, it doesn't feel like greed for greed's sake, but in some ways like self-preservation um, and her own kind of goals and ambitions and her exerting whatever power she can as, you're right, Christine, somebody who, does not have a whole lot of power in this patriarchal feudal structure. Yeah, so, and played by uh, Yasuzu Yamada, who is uh, fantastic in the movie. I mean, everyone does a great job, but yeah, she really, uh, she really brings an interesting depth and texture to a familiar character. And also does not, does a lot with a little. You know, as like this noble yeah. lady, she can't be flying Definitely. across the room and, you know, she's not the fool character. She's a noble lady who has to be reserved and keep things together. So every little hand movement or facial expression really speaks volumes. Um, so we learned that it turns out that the Lord is actually on his way to the North Castle. Uh, and Washizu thinks that he is there to attack because Miki revealed the prophecy to the Lord, which Asaji said he was probably going to do. Um, and so he's now freaking out. And this is really the first time we see his paranoia come through, which is a huge part of a lot of Shakespeare characters. And Macbeth is no exception to that. And so we really see this is the beginning of Washizu's um, paranoia. But the Lord is just there on a hunting trip. Um, the Lord then comes in, everyone's sitting there. Uh, he reveals that he's actually going to attack this former rebellious Lord. I believe Asazu is his name. Um, and he's going to use the North Castle as his home base and then send Mickey to essentially be the Castellan, uh, the head of Forest Castle, um, while the Lord is away. Um, everybody clears. And this is also a pretty huge scene. This is like the king saying, I'm going to go kill one of these, one of the main lords, and I'm going to use your base to do it, to facilitate you know, just killing a lord, um, which kind of surprises a lot of people when everybody leaves. Asaji says, now's the time to act. We have to realize our ambitions um, because this is really the best chance to do it. And then if he's going to go for Izazu, what's going to stop him? He has your fort. He's sleeping in your bed. 
you're next. Miki has the castle. His son's going to be king. Like that's, Mm -hmm. you know, this is where we have to step up. And I'm just a sucker for like self-fulfilling prophecies and just like prophecies in general. So I think that's one reason why I've always kind of been drawn to Macbeth. And so the plan is uh, that Asaji is going to poison the guards with sleepy wine, uh, put them to sleep, which is also from Macbeth as well. Um, So, you know, Dave, as you mentioned, stripped down, but still keeping a lot of those um, established elements um, that kind of keep the plot moving along. Um, And we get a very cool scene as well of her shuffling into the darkness and then coming back with the wine. At this point, Washizu is still not really with the plan. And so she's sort of like pushing him toward this cliff. And that's just a great shot. She just comes out of shadow holding this wine, her face fully illuminated, you know, her whole body fully illuminated. Yeah, it's ominous. And I mean, it, it kind of like rings of the same, um, almost like lighting contrast that we get in the forest of um, like, Obviously, you know, she and he are, uh, their fates are sort of locked by this prophecy in a way, but she is as much an embodiment of that prophecy as the spirit that delivers it, as far as that contrast is concerned in that moment, which is really interesting. Um, it, it almost just feels like, you know, it, it, it highlights how faded the events foretold are and how doomed, in a sense, both of them are in a really creative and really uh, simplistic way, mm-hmm. in an understated really, way. That's a really interesting point. And it's like, Asaji comes to terms with it quicker than what she's like. It's like she's recognizing sort of the mechanics of fate going on around them much faster than Washizu is, even though he's the one who heard the prophecy, but she's kind of like realizing what's happening, which mm-hmm. I feel like is so interesting about the character of Lady Macbeth, whether it's, you know, self-serving conniving or it's like just, a very uh, astute understanding of of environment, of society, and of fate, of like fate. <laughs> so the guards are poisoned, Asa- um, and so Asaji then you know poisons the guards. We get a glimpse of like how tough the guards take their job. They're just people going past, just some house servants, and they're like ready to fight them. Like, no, we're just going to clean out the the forbidden room. Uh, because mm-hmm. you know, the Lord is in Washizu's bed. And so they're okay, you can pass. And so this is the room where the OG rebel Lord from the beginning of the movie that we didn't see um, killed himself. Man does Kurosawa love the use of just big blood on walls. It's um, stunning. It's so beautiful <laughs> yeah. though. The way that the, wo- and it's like, you don't even need to see red. It's right. black and white. So you can't even see this, uh, this, you know, bright red, but it the way that it's stained on the walls, I mean, it's sick, but like it looks so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, another tried, example of great set design. And they've tried to scrub and scrub it away, but it's still there. But this is where very ominous place to sleep for people plotting to murder. The king, <laughs> um, and so Asaji brings the guards the wine. They go to sleep. She brings the spear back to Ashizu, and it's very quiet until the crows squawk. Uh, and then he goes off to kill the Lord. And we haven't really talked about music that much. There's so many elements that I'd, we're not going to be able to touch on them all, but it's a great use of music um, throughout this scene because we don't actually see the Lord being murdered, which I think is such a tempting proposition for anybody adapting Macbeth or any kind of story like this. We stay with Asaji, the flutes, which are very you know popular and know 
um, style theater start back up, which has happened throughout the movie. Um, and then she turns around to look at the rebel Lord's blood on the wall, does a double take. And then as her heart starts to race, these percussive elements pick up to mm-hmm. emphasize her kind of emotional state. And then what she's comes back blood on his spear, blood on his hands. And then it all feels very theatrical as well of like, well, we don't have, you know, in the globe theater days, you don't have the budget to like, show all the slaughtering or this huge scene. So someone just goes off, come back, fake blood on their hands. So I just really appreciate a lot of those purposeful or not kind of like theatrical nods to the you know, theatrical tradition. Well, it's also like he would have done it if he wanted to, because, and as we'll talk about the like famous arrow death scene, it's like that probably took a lot of planning. And so if he really wanted to show it, he could have. And then it was just like, Nope, not going to do it because it's going to create more tension and be really, really uh, effective. Right. Yeah. Again, like there's not there's not a decision in this movie as concerns Kurosawa's direction and writing that I would second guess because everything feels so thoroughly intentional. And then we see of like this is such a great character moment for Ashi, um, Asaji because she's now it's like she's horrified at kind of this realization. I don't know if it's horrified about murder itself horrified about the path that she set them down, not quite realizing the stakes of what she's involving them in, but it's too late. (laughs) You know, he's off, kills the Lord, and then he comes back a changed man. Um, He kind of falls to the ground on his knees. She has to pry the spear out of his bloody hands, and then she has to deliver it um, back to the guards because they're framing one of the guards who got drunk. You know, the story is Gar got drunk and killed the Lord, and now she literally has blood on her hands. (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. from this murder. Uh, Washizu is in shock still. Um, Asaji comes back out and washes her hands and then goes back out and yells that there's been a murder, uh, cries murder. Um, and then Washizu actually kills the guard uh, that's framed, which also happens in Macbeth. Macbeth says, you know, says he kills the guards out of anger, even though he killed them so they wouldn't tell, you know, say that they're innocent. So once again, borrowing from Shakespeare. And so the idea of washing hands becomes very important. <laughs> sure it does. For Lady Macbeth. Um, and so we'll pick up on that later. And so it's been re- the movie's been pretty quiet um, until the crow squawks, flutes, percussive picks up, and then they cry murder, and now there's all-out war. Really nobody's buying that <laughs> Shizu didn't you know this you know that people believe you know it's like you killed him there's no way that you didn't kill him many people in the realm um believe that and so there's this fight this fight scene this chaos horses running everywhere men soldiers running everywhere and they're trying to get washizu washizu's trying to get the head guard i forget his name off noriasu i think is his name um and also um the lord's son as well so now there's a scramble this power grab so some calm has now built into a roar um, of chaos. And so there's another chase scene through the woods. Um, the, you know, kind of lieutenant guard, Lord Sun, rush back to the forest castle where Miki is. Can I, them. Just, can I throw something uh, in here really quickly as we're talking about chase scenes and horses? This is such a demanding performance uh, of all of the main characters, uh, especially... Uh, Minifune? Yeah. So he has to act and be compelling on a whole. Like, I don't think he had a double, right? 
I I don't know. It doesn't look like it. If they I, did, yeah, they blended in seamlessly. I really don't think he did. And I was so impressed by how, I mean, it's a super physical performance, but also how much horse work he had to do. Like, uh, because really there were, there were shots, uh, like distant shots of him running up and it was definitely um, Tarishu Mufune. And yeah, I, I just was like, Obviously, then Kurosawa, you know, he said, you said, Connor, he's in 14 of Kurosawa's other movie or 15 of his other movies. So obviously he's an extremely talented performer. But like in movies today, even actors who like are like, okay, I can ride a horse. I can I can ride a horse and do archery at the same time would not be doing that. They would be obviously getting doubles because of insurance reasons or whatever. But like. Uh, yeah, I was just so impressed by the athleticism of his performance and like how he handled all of the like the archery and the horseback riding so seamlessly. As impressive as Patrick Swayze jumping out of uh, an airplane 50 some odd times. Yeah, but like he wasn't al- <laughs> really allowed to. <laughs> Kurosawa was like, anything you can do, go for it because I want a good shot. <laughs> So we have a scene in front of the forest castle. Uh, Miki, we do not see him, but he does not let. Um, these folks in who, you know, basically what she's do is pin them and basically could kill them, but he decides to not go after them and said he wants the castle. He wants to go in the forest, uh, go in the forest castle. Interesting what turns the movie would take um, if he decided to pursue them, which he probably very easily could have captured them. Um, that's when word gets sent from Asaji that the best way to open the gates would be to bring the Lord's body. You know, an obvious Trojan horse, of course, they're going to open the door for the Lord, which will allow Washizu's army um, to enter uh, the castle. And so there's this great funeral procession, great music. That's play very funeral, you know, dramatic music that comes up throughout the, the movie. Uh, and then Miki opens the gate to confront Washizu, um, and it's silent at the front of the gate, tension in the air. And then they finally enter the castle. Uh, when they enter the castle, Washizu is confronted by a crowd of weeping women crying for the death of the Lord and is informed by Miki that uh, the lady of the castle actually killed herself once she heard of her husband's death because she did not want any enemy taking the castle. Great little moment of, you know, how the actions of killing this guy have impacted innocent people. Um, and I love kind of Miki's uh, delivery of that uh, as he as he uh, explains to uh, Washizu that... Um, yeah, that she has she has killed herself because she can't live to see her uh, husband's castle disgraced by uh, sieging lords or, or foreign hordes and so on. The way that uh, yeah, I guess his name is uh, Minoru Chiaki uh, playing um, playing Miki. What delivering that information is yeah, very very like stoic, and and you can just see from his performance. I don't know. It, te- it telegraphs a lot about him him having been a part of the collapse of that place under uh, Washuzu's rise and uh, and the the toll that is taken not only on the people he's describing as having been killed or or um, or the the lady of the manor who's killed herself, but also the toll that is taken on him psychologically. With him being the only other person aside from um, Washuzu's wife uh, with the knowledge of this prophecy, and I think it's he kind of has no choice but to lean into this prophecy 
and then to say at the council of lords that are being gathered i'm going to recommend that you take over lordship of the forest castle Mm -hmm. So fulfilling the biggest part of the prophecy for Rishizu, which I guess sort of Miki, he's a really interesting character, sort of like, well, at least my son will be able to do it, I think is sort of like, and he says that, you know, we need the strongest general, the strongest person to hold the forest castle, which is you, Rishizu. So I wonder how much of it is like resigned to fate, how much of it is self-interest to help his son. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely a lot of layers to think about and unpack with Miki in this moment. So... Now that Washizu's Lord of the Castle, you know, the, the committee's going to confirm him. We fade to black and cut to the maybe same group of soldiers who we saw before. Um, another little vignette who comment on, you know, they're in the forest castle now. These guys are getting elevated in life just like Washizu is because they're in his retinue. Uh, and say they can view the whole castle and how lucky they are to have risen with Washizu. Um, if only he had an heir, dot, 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 mm. hard cut to Asagi and Washizu. The idea of an heir is really present now in this section of the movie. Um, it's sort of like Asagi's working to initiate the rest of the prophecy to be Lord. And now there's the other part of, well, you know, Miki has a son who said, you know, the prophecy was he's going to be Lord of the castle. But what she's doing, Asagi, don't have any kids. And Asagi <laughs> basically said, she's worked too hard. I did not stain my hands of blood so Miki's son could rise. Um, Asagi wants what she wants and she isn't going to let some dumb forest spirit take her power away. <laughs> so it's sort of like leaning into the prophecy. And now this is, you know, now her role as character role is fighting this prophecy to produce an heir to say, F you spirit, we're going to have a kid. And then she does indeed tell, uh, what she's, that she is with child. And then we cut to that great flute sound again and cut to the chaos of Miki's horse bucking and running around. Um, the, the courtyard. Uh, Miki's horse won't let the stable hand saddle it because it senses danger. There's quite a few moments in the film where animals are signs uh, of import- importance, of like things are going to happen. Crows squawking, literally a murder of crows, uh, appear later in the movie. This horse is bucking, does not want to go to this banquet, um, which is just like the banquet in Macbeth, where, you know, Oshizu is welcoming. Uh, invites Miki to the forest castle to celebrate his rise. Uh, But the horse doesn't want to go. Miki's son is like, we should really listen to this. Don't think we should go. Uh, His son thinks that it's silly to follow the words of a forest tag. Uh, But Miki believes um, that the, you know, um, the throne of forest castle can be attained without bloodshed. I don't think he knows he's in a movie called Throne of Blood. (laughs) Um, Connor, as you're speaking to that, yeah, I mean, there's such a pronounced importance on like um, nature as foreshadowing or or as an almost self-aware audience surrogate for the rising tension of the places that the characters find themselves in. But it's interesting because it's like nature that's either domestic, like domesticated or or for for work, like a horse Mm-hmm. Uh, or crow. Yeah, I guess crows would be naturally occurring, but really there's not much natural wildlife that we really encounter. It's just very specific types of animals that, yeah, as Dave, you, Dave, you said, uh, indicate sort of uh, feelings and, and uh, things that are unspoken and unsaid uh, that, that add uh sort of tension to each scene but as far like once we like think about the forests uh there's sort of this sort of like control over nature almost and you see the time that we see the crows i get we're going to get to this are like like 
inside and within the fortress space and inside of the banquet room. But because I, I was definitely thinking about nature and its relationship with the characters. And I was like, well, we don't really what we see are horses and crows. And then, yeah, go ahead. Well, it is yeah, it's beyond that, too. I mean, it's it's right down to like the weather is indicative of a lot of these things. Like, I mean, the windstorm that arrives later in the film, um, there's the the sort of coming and going fog to create a sense of like kind of like mythical and eerie uh prophetic gravity and like it, it just feels like somehow yeah it, it almost feels like um kurosawa as a director is almost like as far as what what is portrayed on the screen in command of the elements themselves as as totems of storytelling and uh intention the movie gods and it's like yeah it's like the forest and the fort are two very different habitats and have the forest which has trees that are abundant but then once nature enters sort of this barren fortress that's just volcanic sand and like structures and wood I, as we were talking about like the fact that asaji can't have an air it's like almost this like sterile environment where animals are either horses or like that are like not naturally occurring or things like that there's just like nothing abundant and natural about the space that the characters inhabit versus the four. I don't know. I'm going on a tangent, but it's definitely, I, yeah, I, nature wasn't really anything I was thinking about as I was watching it, but the things that you guys are bringing up are definitely. And I guess I have this like later in my notes, but it makes me think of maybe the idea too of like that maybe it's the spirit or what Shizu is like disturbing the natural order of how things progress or maybe just mm. man in general disturbing a natural order. I don't, I haven't dug too deep in that idea. We can touch on it later. Um, but I love all this nature talk we're bringing up because when there's almost none of it, when it exists, it must be very important. Mm -hmm. So we cut to nighttime, group of house guards bemoaning that they couldn't go to the banquet. And then Miki's horse comes running back through the gate into the yard without Miki on it. Not a good sign at mm -hmm. all. Horse running home without its rider. Then we cut to the banquet. Also an amazing scene. Hard to pick a favorite one, but this is certainly up there for me. Uh, the camera follows a performer, a fool type of character, who, and I didn't realize this the first time I watched it, you know, the opening shot of this banquet is him walking right over to where Miki and his son should be sitting. And then it kind of pans mm -hmm. over to um, Boshizu and Asagi. And the performance echoes the same lyrics as the spirit, as the chanting in the beginning says, talking about vanity, talking about pride. Um, which does not sit well with the royal couple. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, feels very targeted, and he commands the fool to stop. Um, Wasiju is looking around the room. It's silent. Must be very uncomfortable to be um, in this space. And then we have a lake house moment where the camera zooms in on Washizu, and then we see his reaction. He's, um, or, so it zooms in on him. He looks away from Miki's you know, place setting, looks around the room, then the camera dollies back and we see Washizu's horrified expression grow. Camera stays on him until we go back just far enough to see um, an irradiated, irradiating ghost of Miki, just like how the ghost of Banquo at the banquet taunts Macbeth. You know, mm -hmm. Miki's ghost is, even though he's just sitting there, very much like the spirit uh, and the same lighting effect. I'm not quite sure how they rigged that, um, but it's really impressive again. And then he sees the ghost. And so he kind of freaks out, understandably. He feels very guilty about his one best friend, you know, his old best friend. He is dead. 
unclear about the sequence of events of how he knew of when he knew that Miki was going to be killed or if he was it Asaji who assass led the assassin. I think that's a little unclear, but he is clearly knows that Miki cannot survive long because his son will take over. So he has to, you know, they are threats to his rule. I was um, also kind of confused uh, about that as well. Mm-hmm. And so he fights, basically fights the spirit. And there's another great shot too, similar to the Witch in the Woods, where it kind of zooms in on when he has his sword out, zooms in on Washizu, and then it pans back and then Miki's ghost is gone. But it's it's still the same one shot. So classic. I feel like the scene doesn't get more classic Kurosawa than kind of a lot of the dollying up and down and camera work um, that he does here. And this is just such a great scene. Mifune has such a great face in the banquet scene uh, and really in the whole movie, as we've talked about. And I really think in the second half, his face kind of adopts this sort of no style of kind of has a similar expression on his face that can, to me, mean fear, determination, anger, or, you know, kind of posturing strength. And no masks were designed to when the person looks left, right, up, or down to look a little different depending on the lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that feels very purposeful of how his face is sort of locked in this anguish, this passion, this determination, this fear. All of these emotions are living with him. And even though he uses just a couple faces, I think it conveys this entire range of emotions, especially in this banquet scene. His movement also um, is is so interesting to watch, like the way that he, like, he sort of like sidesteps across the room uh, that almost looks like, like choreographed movement, but um, accompanied with those faces uh, is, re- is really compelling to watch. And the camera, yeah, the camera movement. I mean, this is all one shot. The this whole this whole banquet sequence uh, of him, you know, it, it starts largely on um, Washizu and like a, a pretty hard, a pretty hard hold on his face, and then it kind of pans out to reveal Miki's ghost sort of occupying the space. But then it zooms back in on um, Washizu as he kind of like yeah, as we said, side si- kind of like sidesteps around the room. But and and Washizu is always our focus, even when it like pulls back to reveal that for everyone else in the room, Miki's ghost obviously isn't physically there. It's just something that's occurring to him. So it's it's a really great way of including everyone on the periphery of the scene while still focusing so exclusively on Washizu and um, Mijune's, uh like incredible acting chops as he brings to light this kind of like horror that he individually as a character is experiencing. Yeah, I don't know, it's, it's an incredible sequence. It was one of the real standouts for me. And the expressions on everyone else's face who's in the room, they're all kind of waiting to, to, for direction or to like start the meal. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're sort of witnesses to this power grab and these different, like the dynamics unfolding uh, as far as the absence of, of Miki and his son. Uh, but it's just interesting, yeah, that they're, they're sort of witnesses to it, but they're also confused <laughs> about what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, but and like it includes that confusion while it's still being chiefly about Washizu's terror, which is really thoughtfully expressed without dialogue. It's just the way that it's shot. And and I think that's tied to the idea of like one person, two people, ten people. Like it's a build up. It's a sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, past life director in training, theater director is like all about, and I'm sure the film too. You know of like you won and then you broaden the focus out to like include everybody. Like it's just so masterful. You know, he's a cinematic master for a reason. Yeah, for sure. 
Asaji's basically playing cleanup duty. Um, he's drunk. He drank too much wine. Um, he gets like this. <laughs> which is also what Lady Macbeth more or less says about um, Macbeth. And so trying to say, it's okay, it's okay. We are secure. This is a stable reign. You can believe in, you know, in the reign of Washizu. She's once again cleaning up his messes that he can't figure out how to finish himself. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, Asaji then dismisses everybody from the banquet. Uh, then a soldier walks in with uh, Miki's head wrapped in cloth saying, oh, I, you know, basically I killed Miki, um, which we got inferred by A, the ghost, and B, the horse that came running back earlier that we saw. And so, but he tells him that his son escaped. Um, Asaji, I was watching this scene carefully for her reaction, because it is sort of unclear of how this happened. Um, And, you know, pawns do their own things too sometimes. You know, maybe it was inferred that Miki should be taken out or somebody took it upon their own volition to order this person. But Sometimes. you made it sound like you were so stoked. I just, I don't know. I'm sorry. Okay, never mind. I'm sorry. I, I guess I messed up. <laughs> so she slinks away, which maybe hints that this is her idea. Maybe. And Wasizu kills the soldier out of anger and paranoia. Uh, and the soldier dies very painfully. I believe this is the first painful death that we've seen in the movie. Because the other soldier dies quickly, basically, uh, stage death, one stab, and he's done. Mm. Uh, but you see some minor blood effects, and it just goes on, and you see kind of the blood starting to pool, and he's just, like, grasping, and it's this wide shot of uh, Washizu sort of slowly backing up to this, like, wooden wall with cloud paintings on it. He's slowly just, like, not, like, animatronic-like, but unnatural, that frame was so great where it's the dying guard in the center and then you see Washizu. It's not a stumble back, as you say, Connor. It's this very interesting... I think it's like also the sort of sidestep but backwards movement up against the wall. Yeah, I, that I remember being a really striking shot. Yeah, Mifune's physicality in this movie is remarkable. Um, I mean, throughout, this is but one highlight, uh, as well as the banquet sequence we discussed, as well as what comes at the end. He's just really someone who, I don't know, I, I don't know too much about, uh, other than that they've, they were frequent collaborators. I don't know too much about um, like Kurosawa's instruction for him or how much freedom he had to express himself artistically as an actor, and especially in a, a, like that physical sense. But wh- whether or not it was like encouraged or whether it was just allowed, either way, it's, it's totally masterful on Mifune's part. The camera doing all the favors. Yeah, that's it's, and it is the two of them working in like perfect union, actor and director. And I don't know if that's something that was so thoroughly explored with them behind the scenes, or if it was just like a natural synergy. But it's so abundant throughout the whole movie. And for me, in this scene, this is where the titular throne of blood, like the die is cast. Miki is dead. There's really no going back from. I view this as you know, like Macbeth steps into tyranny. Like, this is where you go mm-hmm. from someone who grabs power to now somebody who is a paranoid tyrant, um, killing people in his own banquet halls, his own throne room area. Uh, we do a fade to black, which we get some of those, but I, I wrote down when they happen just because it's you know, interesting. A fade to black, and it is very windy. Uh, time <laughs> has passed, um, approximately nine months, which we'll learn in just a minute. Uh, and we get a glimpse again of perhaps these same soldiers 
Um, once again, enjoy these little brief vignettes that we get. Kind of, we had this very intense ghost scene, intense murder scene, and then we get a little bit of chance to breathe to catch up on what's happened. Um, as these welcome, George break. Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, they mention how the whole castle is shaking because of the wind. Uh, and the foundations of the castle have been rotting for a long time. Um, so just as we brought up of this idea of like man building something in an unnatural place, and we get hints of that the castle was built here because it's on the other side of the forest. So we, the, the defenders can see everybody the whole time, but they can't see through because of the arrow slitted windows. Um, and there's a lot, I noticed the second time watching it for the podcast, a lot of talk of how impregnable how strong of a fortification this is. And now, well, she's who's been here for only nine months and it's already starting to crumble. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, it's not literally like if, you know, this is not a literal story. This is a movie. This is, you know, the foundations themselves are falling apart just as they are around him for his reign. Don't build um, your house upon the sand, man. No. no. Even <laughs> the volcanic sand. Well, I guess if you're going to pick, volcanic sand's a pretty cool spot to build a castle. Yeah, but it's going to, we all know. It's a short-term castle. Short-term yeah. castle. <laughs> so we, they also mentioned how captains and generals used to frequently pay homage to Washizu, but not anymore. People are scared of him. His tyranny and his paranoia is reaching the realm. You know, word of that's reaching the realm. And Miki's son is staying with that rebel lord that has been, you know, we've been talking about. Um, then there's this great quote. It is said that rats leave right before a house burns. Without the strength and loyalty of the previous lord, the foundations of order are crumbling and the natural order is thrown out of whack. Maybe nature is kind of taking its revenge or nature sees the signs and is saying that you are not good for this world. We're trying to kick you out. Uh, So we have the crow, horses, rats. Um, These are all sort of, as we talked a little bit about, animals uh, being brought up and behaving abnormally perhaps talking about how regicide disturbs the natural order, maybe, um, but definitely lots of connections to animals and nature. Yeah, and also as we go like full Hitchcock and there's this, this, this wave of crows, the one thing that was really funny to me was like, as I was watching it, I was like, wait a minute, there's, there's like four or five pigeons in the mix here. I could definitely tell those are pigeons. <laughs> they had a huge horse budget, but not a big bird budget. <laughs> Pigeons are $2 cheaper an hour, <laughs> two yen cheaper an hour. <laughs> um, so this little vignette's over. Uh, we then cut to perhaps a midwife opening a door to reveal, uh, which reveal, I mean, this is just another great shot. <laughs> it reveals what she's and he's basically just staring into space. And then he looks right at the camera. At first, this is kind of, like, I love how Kurosawa sometimes messes with like direction or first person view. Sort of like, it looks like the camera is, like, because we see a hand pop up to open the door, like, first person of this midwife character to reveal what she's kind of staring into space, and he looks up right at the camera. Camera dollies back, the midwife is bowing on the ground, and then it's sort of like a normal movie scene. So just this great, like, unsettling of, like, what perspective are we in? (laughs) Like, is he looking at the audience? Like, it's very unsettling. um, Yeah, it's like a... Yeah, the camera kind of moves in and out of being like a, a like an omniscient third party narrator in framing the scene, but also like occasionally its movements are lockstep and interactive with the characters that come to appear in the screen, which is really 
unique and really interesting. So this midwife announces that uh, Asaj, um, Asaji has just given birth, but the baby is still born. The child was dead inside her. Probably, I didn't even think about this, but another reference to just the corruption of Washizu's reign, the disturbance perhaps of the natural order, uh, foundations on sand. I think it all kind of ties into that. Uh, Washizu tries to go see Asaji, but is stopped by the midwife, which is this great just power dynamic of she has to keep bowing, but she like, like a crab kind of moves, scuttles around the room to try to block him, but she has to be lower than him because he's the Lord. So it's just an interesting power it's, yeah, power play. it's like obstructing his his path via a display of subservience, which is interesting because obviously she's not necessarily being subservient if she's blocking his path toward going in and seeing what's going on. But it becomes so understood to him via that display that, you know, it's best if you it's basically her suggesting, like, listen, uh, you might want to walk this one off. <laughs> Just like uh, go go take a five. Because uh, this isn't, yeah, this isn't going great. Um, so he takes his five, goes back <laughs> room, and then just screams fool at his um, sword and his helmet with Christine, as you brought up, the crescent kind of fixture on the front. And this is what ambition has brought him. The helmet has never looked less important than I think it has in this scene. It's like, it does, it, and it also like midway through him rising to his ascent, it, it becomes damaged, right? Like isn't a portion of like the far right side of his helmet, like just like chopped off or something as far as that insignia goes? It's definitely a little warped. Yeah. Ooh, I didn't pick up on that. Good detail. Hmm. And so this is, I think of this, scenes like this remind me, uh, I think I've told the story on the podcast where Ang Lee's Hulk in 2003 uh, is the movie that made me realize films can be bad. <laughs> where uh, Eric Bana uh, stares into the mirror and just like cries and screams because he's so sad he's the Hulk. And everybody in the theater laughs because it was just such a weird, like it just did not work at all, at least for the audience that I was in. Haven't seen that movie since 2003. Maybe I would like it more. But this is just sort of like character coming to his own realization. And it's just played so perfectly of like the, Sword is smaller, the and like everything, all the angles are askew. Um, and he's just totally like this is what ambition has brought him a sword and a dinged up helmet. Mm-hmm. So, mirroring the opening scene, um, once again, a series of messengers come, uh, Tiwashizu telling him that rebel forces have taken back multiple forts. This fort is now turning, joining forces or turning back. Um, so it's sort of this nice cycling of. And it speeds up faster and faster every time. But instead of good news, this is horrible news for a yeah. protagonist. Um, the whole realm has turned against him. Uh, also similar to the beginning, his war council cannot make a decision. But this time, there are no allies. There's no loyalty. Nobody who can bail him out of trouble when the land is rising against him. So that's not something I really picked up on the first time, but something that kind of caught my attention the second time. And it's clear and like highlighted, especially via the conversations that we have with several of those guards that are recurring, where like times right now seem to be okay, but it seems like it's hinged upon an, a, a pretty unpredictable, if not ill suited leader or figurehead. And uh, obviously, that the momentum of that sequence with all the, uh, you know, the correspondence of, from the front and 
his deteriorating empire. It, it further accentuates that with uh, ultimately the representation of decreased confidence in, you know, the military rank and uh, and citizenry of his regime when that conversation comes to the head. So things are pretty bad for our buddy Washizu. Lots of swipe transitions, which I thought was an interesting choice as messengers are coming in and out, just highlighting the frantic nature of this. And I love when he runs right toward the camera, yelling for his horse. Just another great use of cameras zooming mm-hmm. in. Because um, he is, he's making a decision. And just like Macbeth, uh, he runs out into the forest looking for um, the evil spirits. The rain starts up. He runs to the forest. Here's, uh, Dave, your favorite evil laugh. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a stunning, it's a stunning element in the movie. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, and then Christine circling back to what we were talking about at the beginning. This is the running witch. Yes. <laughs> it feels like such a, you're right, like Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, somewhat kind of like foreground, background, like, like, I don't know. It just feels very like, I don't know of its time. But and just freaky, like, but freaky and co- kind of comical because she's now above him. The whole time we've seen this witch until she rises at the very end of the prophecy, she was below them and, you know, standing and rank. And now right. she is far above. It's one yeah. of those things that I, I get when I watch old movies, especially old movies that are trying to address like ghosts and spooky things where I feel like there's an added level of, of scary elements because it's so it was shot so long ago part of me feels like if it looks compelling and looks like it happened it probably did because like there was no editing and post-production magic that directors have to utilize now it's like watching the witch movie Haxon. it was like oh shit like most of this shit probably was happening like when witches were putting like frogs into boiling water it's the fear that oh god they probably were putting live animals into boiling pots that's a side note but i feel like the shots of the witch especially when she's running through have an element of eeriness because it was shot like so long ago that it was like what what magic was actually happening (laughs) behind Mm -hmm. the scenes uh so she sprints through above him and he does find her. Uh, we do get a simplified version of the final prophecy. Uh, in Macbeth, the first prophecy basically has three parts. Second prophecy has three parts. But in Throne of Blood, the prophecy that the spirit gives to Washizu is that Washizu will not be defeated unless the forest advances toward the castle. Yeah. <laughs> forest can't, can't march. I am safe forever. The hubris of a classical... You know, theatrical figure. Um, also, kudos, kudos to Kurosawa on that. It's just like, all right, speed it up, Shakespeare. Let's get to the point. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> in Macbeth, it's like, you will not die of man born of woman. And that's because Macduff was, you know, part of a C-section. He wasn't actually birthed through the vaginal canal. The right. Vaginal. Uh, it's like it, brevity, it, brevity is the soul of wit. Somebody said that, William. <laughs> And I must have fallen asleep when I watched it the first time. I watched it late at night because I did not remember spirits turning into different soldiers, the spirit, um, turning into these different figures, basically egging him on. And I loved how just fun, how much fun this evil trickster spirit was having, um, basically taunting him to double down on the carnage, the savagery and the blood mm-hmm. of his brain of saying like, 
this is going to work. You got to just keep pushing. Don't, don't take your foot off the gas. Uh, And these soldiers are also, I mean, there's a great like transition shot of like, it's the witch. And now it's a soldier, like quickly, like just another great example of editing, great costumes once again, all around for these soldiers. Um, And then we do a side transition to a massive army marching. Uh, The rebel Lords basically more or less charge into the forest and also a very cool shot. One of the main generals of the old lore that we are following says, don't follow the trails, just keep going straight. The trails are just going to confuse you in this labyrinth. And and Washizu's men abandon their forest posts, we learn uh, in the next scene. So basically, it's over for our buddy Washizu. Uh, The funeral march, sound is back. He tries to give a rousing speech to his troops, tells them all about the prophecy and how far it has taken him. Um, which the first time I watched it, I thought that that's when they would turn. But no, they're like, yes, they love this speech. I'm All so the- glad you mentioned that because I was thinking that too. I was like, why are they going along with this? I mean, I guess they don't have any choice, but they seem to be pretty motivated by this stupid prophecy being like, everything is fine. I heard it in a dream. No, like, I'm trying to imagine any army being like, yes. This general knows exactly what's going to happen because of all these stupid prophecies that he heard and is going to believe. You can just see one by one the soldiers like nudging each other, just being like, hey, I think he's kind of lost it. The emperor is not wearing any Right, exactly. An emperor, no clothes situation, totally. You're like, all right, let's let's go along with it. But they are bought in uh, to the speech. And so there's this great shot, wide shot of them raising their spears in the air. Uh, supporting Washizu. Then we cut to nighttime. Another group of soldiers hanging out. Mention that they can't see anything. The enemy hasn't even lit a fire, which is super weird. Um, Then they hear the chopping wood, but they think it's just the rebel force making a defensive perimeter, you know, uh, hammering fences into the ground. Uh, Then we cut to Washizu, who is sitting with his commanders. He feels very confident in the design of his castle. And then a murder of crows flood the banquet hall. Um, and he is totally unfazed. Everyone's like, this is an ill omen, which was set up way earlier in the movie. Um, that crows <laughs> squawking are an ill omen. And he's just like, nah, this is cool. One like perches on his shoulder. Very. I've already, I've already been talking to spirits. It's fine. I got this. <laughs> the very uh, Blood Raven Game of Thrones moment with the ravens, with the crows. Um, and everyone's just like freaked out. And he's just like, Nah, I can't be defeated because of this prophecy. We're good. Uh, during the night, uh, Washizu is awoken by Saji's handmaids who are screaming, rushes over to her room, sees her scrubbing her hands, attempting to wash imaginary blood off of them. Same scene, you know, similar scene with Lady Macbeth. Classic. Um, it, it, it's classic. And he even takes the bowl away and she's still just washing, almost like catatonic, of uh, losing this child, you know, I guess that's her full moment that Washizu had because she grabbed all this power, but she still can't have a child. And maybe is, I think that was like the final thing that triggered her over, pushed her over the edge, coming to realization that every, literally everything was for naught. Um, yeah, because I mean, in the original Macbeth, it's largely the guilt of the murder of the Lord, right? That drives her to madness as opposed to the combination of, because is this, is the stillborn part a facet of Macbeth, the original Macbeth as well. I don't recall. It's been a while. I thought it was implied that that they tried to have, have children, but they can't. But there's it just didn't work. Yeah. There's some line about milk and like 
spoiled milk or you know some yes. suggestion of of fertility infertility uh, yeah but i don't know if it's fully played out that she they try for a baby and then uh it's stillborn i can't remember mm-hmm. so this is a really and asagi has generally disappeared from large chunks of the movie and then we just get a great kind of final scene with her just resigned to her fate of like she's just trapped in this cycle of guilt of grief and you know, Shizu yells her name. She's not answering. It's it, it's it's really moving and very very tragic, very sad. Yeah, it's kind of a great prelude to the uh, you know the unraveling that follows. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of unraveling, there's a ruckus outside. Why is everybody screaming? But Shizu runs into the courtyard to see what's going on. All of his soldiers are fleeing uh, from the gate because the forest is moving closer to the castle, fulfilling the last prophecy. Um, love, I don't know how they filmed it. I, I didn't look the detail up, but I love the idea it's of like- amazing. Those like, shots- like miniatures. It's first you get kind of an aerial, or it's not an aerial view, it would be a view of a, of a guard of the fortress looking down at the trees from above. And you see these beautiful swaying trees uh, that are moving. And then you see the sh- on the ground shot of the guys actually holding the trunks and advancing forward and it's so cool i think that's later though right at first it is just the sort of like bizarre movement of this forest like as a force coming for them yeah you right you're totally then it's revealed you don't have the context of how it's moving you just get the above view that looks so good although if you know Macbeth, you know where it's going but yeah but the way that it's visually brought into the story which is these swaying trees making their way through the fog and clearly like within the frame advancing is just so incredible. And pairing that with uh, Mifune's reaction. And I put it here, so good in all caps. Mm -hmm. Um, The way, yeah, we've talked many times about his energy, his physicality, bringing it right into the end. Um, this is maybe my favorite scene in the movie. It's, it's, it's hard. I don't know. Like I said, lots of good ones. So he runs across the battlements, yells at his troops to not leave their posts, but nobody moves. Um, Kurosawa, master of blocking, master of crowd work. And, you know, sure, it's effective if a few people don't move. Try a hundred people standing perfectly still, not listening. Like, it's just such an effective shot. And it's the same angle, the same exact shot setup of when they raised their spears the night before saying that they're with him, but the supernatural events that they perceive, you know, this, they perceive as supernatural is what you know, really stops them in their tracks and is this really chilling moment. Especially when in his confidence, he's like, it would take the forest moving for me to take a dive. And it's just like, um, the forest is outside. <laughs> <laughs> then somebody in the crowd fires an arrow and then more. The camera stays on Washizu as he flails about trying to dodge real arrows. These are real arrows that they're shooting at him. And apparently how they coordinated it was he would like move his eyes and and arm first to telegraph what direction he was moving in. And then the arrows would shoot. It's like, this is just absolute insanity. Well, yeah, yeah. Just to the degree, as far as that sequence is concerned, like that, it was basically like, um, like a scissor lift on the set that was like, uh, like an enormous scissor lift that held like, I I forget how many, I want to say it was like 
in my research, I think it was like 21 trained archers just firing off bows. And then we also, if you look at like an HD copy of this or like the Criterion copy, you can see that there is like, um, there are almost like strings that connect to Mifune um, uh, from off in the distance, which are like, that's how they kind of like launch a lot of those arrows that make direct contact with him. Although that having been said, uh, Kurosawa still insisted that they be sharpened arrows to like further like accentuate the impact and like the, you know the individual impact of each arrow as they strike uh, Mifune because they lodge in his uniform. Yeah, and like, so he, it's like- I, I guess he's wearing like a uh, blocking, like he was wearing like like wood blocking in his in his wardrobe oh, at the time. Yeah. But at the, at the same time, like it was actually being struck with like you know not not arrows like fired by trained archers, but like pointed arrows that were flying down like shoots and strings right into his body. And for him to pull off this performance with that happening to him physically on top of real live arrows inches away from his body is incredible. And this once again, this is another scene that is long. It's like you could understand Mm -hmm. a director being like, okay, I'm going to do this really cool thing where I'm going to shoot real arrows into this actor and it's going to be effective. Like you could imagine somebody being like, okay, it's going to happen maybe 10 arrows and we get the, we get the picture, but it's like, no, Kurosawa is going to take it to the ultimate extreme. And it's so cool. And so, yeah, just effective. And once again, I think is a testament also to uh, Mifune, uh, what's, Mifune's performance and a demanding one like like once again horseback riding being the archer and being arched at or shot at arched at (laughs) nobody is arched at (laughs) but like (laughs) yeah he like he really uh is put through the ringer and I guess one thing that happened too was like after they finished that day's shoot uh Kurosawa looked at some of the like um the dailies for it and was like all right, I'm pretty satisfied. Like, I think this looks pretty good. But kind of like, uh, from what I understand, basically uh, from that point on, Mifune would approach him throughout the duration of the shoot being like, kind of like cautiously exasperated at the beginning of each day being like, look, are we going to have to shoot that again? If we have to shoot that again, are we going to have to do it again? Just tell me if we're going to have to do it again. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) Movie making is like one of the coolest things ever. He's getting shot at. He's getting obliterated. Uh, but he is still carrying on like all he this is all he has and so he just keeps going as arrows are just flying into him flying into his fortress and then there's a really impressive edit of an arrow going through his neck as he's looking right at the camera incredible Uh, i don't know how he did that in hd versions you can see a teeny tiny movement but I'm sure back in the day on film, it was seamless. I think it's one of those things where like, yeah, in that era, it was probably just like, okay, uh, we're going to film it up to like right before you struck with the arrow, then the arrow being in one side of your neck, cut, don't move. And we'll put the other arrow, the arrow prosthetic on and it'll just be like kind of seamless when it's edited. But like, however they did it, yeah, it's it's matched and edited perfectly. And I think this is an example where an extended scene of him being shot at and the viewer understanding that those are real arrows really piercing the exterior of his costume, it, it sets a viewer up to really feel like an arrow is piercing his neck. It's, it's like an earned setup to the ultimate neck shot where it's like, even though it might not be absolutely 100% seamless, you've already set a person watching, watching the scene up for something that feels physical and like feels like it's 
piercing the body. Yeah, we see like the, we see the most impractical execution of a practical effect at the very end after having established so many like grounded practical elements. Exactly, exactly. Bingo. So he stumbles down the stairs, tries to draw his sword, then collapses and 80% of his body disappears into the fog. Mm-hmm. He is just consumed from the spirit kind of, you know, nature comes to reclaim this, you know, ty- tyrannical ruler with everybody watching on. Um, then the movie ends with the chanting verses about pride and vanity coming back to the forefront. Um, the castle fades away again, rather mysteriously. Then we see this kind of funeral rock again. The mist and the flute, flute playing take us out until the end. So that is the story of Washizu Kurosawa's uh, feudal Japanese take on Macbeth. And a great elliptical, the first shot being kind of the reckoning back to the last shot. So I hope you guys enjoyed us talking through that movie. Definitely recommend um, you go see it yourself. I just have a few, if you'll just indulge me for another couple minutes, about the end of Kurosawa's life, because I do think it is um, really interesting. So he really became one of, if not the most famous Japanese filmmaker of the mid-20th century. But it's kind of interesting of how as time went on kind of Japanese media, Japanese news outlets kind of started turning against him of this view that he was pandering to Western audiences, that he was finding all of the success in Europe and America because he was just pandering to Western sensibilities. He wasn't progressive enough as a filmmaker. According to them, there were some controversies in some films about how he portrays uh, the working class or peasants in his historical pieces which he was like, he refuted and I think came up with some pretty good reasons about why he made those choices, but that still didn't really affect, you know, the public perception. Uh, and so he actually had a difficult time finding financing for his movies, which I think is interesting. So and this is where George Lucas uh, steps in, which I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. So Kurosawa, incredibly influential on, you know, just to name a few directors, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, Roman Polanski, Steven Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Igmar Bergman, you know, countless others have been influenced by Kurosawa. Um, and so, yeah, as a star was rising in Europe and America, it was waning in Japan. Um, in 1978, um, he could not fund his next project. And so Lucas just couldn't believe this and invited Kurosawa to have lunch with him in San Francisco and how he could help him produce his next movie. Uh, they came up with a bunch of ideas and settled on uh, Kagimusha being, you know, probably the most financially viable idea. And with assistance from Coppola as a co-producer, they convinced 20th Century Fox to make um, Kagimusha. Um, they actually, 20th Century Fox actually fired Kurosawa 10 years earlier while he was working on the Japanese version of Tora Tora Tora, which I did oh. not know that that movie had like a Japanese version and an English version that were running at like the same time. I see some of the Japanese ones, it's good. <laughs> yeah, so he was a, apparently a lot of his written stuff, he was brought on as a writer. Apparently some of it has been made in, but he's like uncredited. So there's some like dispute there. Um, but with, because of Lucas and, and Coppola, 20th century took him back. Kagimusha was the first of his final two epics. Uh, it's a story about a thief turned body double. I have not seen Kagimusha. Um, and then in 1985, because of the success of Kagimusha, he uh, released, uh, you know, filmed and released Ron, Kurosawa's take on Shakespeare's King Lear. Um, and both of these films won Japanese and international acclaim, uh, with uh, Kagimusha winning the 
Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, and both being incredibly um, financially viable. Um, after Ron in 1985, he continued to direct films, but it was more or less a case of diminishing returns and passion projects and personal films that he wanted to make, which became less and less um, successful. And eventually he lost support again, financial support in Japan. Uh, in 1990, he accepted the Academy Award for Lifetime Achievement, which was presented by Lucas and Spielberg. It's such a cute speech and such a cute moment. I highly recommend looking it up on YouTube. Um, and it was actually his birthday that they gave him the award. So they had a little telecast from uh, Japan of people singing happy birthday to him, like his um, Kurosawa production crew. Um, it was It's really cute. It's definitely um, worth a watch. Uh, and in his speech, he famously said, I'm a little worried because I don't feel that I understand cinema yet, which got like such an, a you know huge laughter um, from the crowd as somebody who he himself thought that there is still more to learn, that he is not done learning what makes a good movie, what makes the best cinema. Uh, in 95, he slipped and broke the base of his spine, forcing him to use a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Uh, and unfortunately, it ended all hopes of him directing again. And it was his longtime wish to, quote, die on the set while shooting a movie. And that would not be fulfilled. Uh, his health deteriorated, but his mind remained sharp. Uh, and he died of a stroke on September 9th, 1998, at 88 years old. Uh, Ron is incredible. It's on Amazon Prime right now. Be interesting to hear, if you guys ever watch it, your thoughts compared to um, Throne of Blood. Because, yeah, definitely similar Shakespeare vibes and similar techniques, volcanic black soil and fog. Yeah, well. I, I want to watch Ron or, and or uh, Kagam, is it Kagamishu? Kagamush. Uh, both of them are in color and it would really be interesting to, um, yeah, it, they both look gorgeous and it would be really cool to watch his handling of like a color movie because we talked so much about uh, his effective um, contrasts in black and white. And I just have one little fun fact that I just, I think is, is just cool. So apparently, um, in addition to all these filmmakers, um, uh, Stephen King was inspired by um, Kurosawa. And apparently, Washizu's death at the end with the arrows was apparently King's inspiration for, spoiler alerts, uh, Piper Laurie's death. She played Margaret in Carrie, in the film Carrie, uh, who was killed mm. by a barrage of knives being psychically thrown at her. Right. Um, so bye, Carrie. So apparently, you know, that was inspiration as Throne of Blood was inspiration for that death. I mean, just such an incredibly influential figure. I mean, uh, like one of the, one of the true temples of 20th century cinema, which I mean, I guess uh, that encompasses most of cinema, but, um, but drips and drabs of his work can be found everywhere. I think, you know, obviously it's, it's very pronounced and very established and very storied how it informed people like George Lucas or Steven Spielberg. I think it's, it's gone on to inform cinema ever since. I, I think he's one of those like powerful, like titanic visionaries of his era uh, while also still maintaining relevance throughout multiple decades. Um, so I, I would, I, I would easily place um, Kurosawa uh, and his work among uh, the stature and work of of people like uh like Stanley Kubrick or people like um Orson Welles of people like um Robert Downey Sr of people like um John Cassavetes I mean like pretty much the the great titan filmmakers of of of, of US cinema 
uh, for sure. If not global cinema, also Bergman, you know, I mean, he's, he's a real, um, he's a real incredible figure in terms of carving out a new way of approaching the gravity of moving image in, in his own era and in a way that maintains its, its importance as, as legacy in its influence and in its uh, adoration among many people. And uh, happy to, happy to say that I'm among them. I think uh, Kurosawa is a truly a fantastic director and I'm really, really glad Connor that uh, that was your pick for, for this month. I'm glad it was too. And I'm glad we had such a fun, fruitful discussion that definitely had me thinking about, you know, even this movie and his career differently. I guess too, he just perfect man born in the perfect time of like using globalist globalism ties of influencing cultures all around the world. You know, these, you know, inter intercontinental conflicts. Um, Really, I feel like the perfect person born in the perfect time. I kept wondering, I haven't seen but a handful of episodes of Game of Thrones, but I was like, what if Kurosawa was in charge of like Game of Thrones? How, like, because a lot of the fort, the, the episodes I've seen of Game of Thrones, a lot of them are like in the winter fort and things like that. And I feel like it kind of reminded me of the, like the exterior interior fort life and how that's depicted. And I was like, wonder how he would have handled uh like winter forts in game of thrones <laughs> probably that i would yeah as a huge game of thrones song by some fire fan i would hate to see that and it's hard to tell where his influence stops and starts every genre um even you know of course it's hard to make a samurai movie or show without kurosawa influence uh the ps4 game uh ghost of tsushima has a Kurosawa mode is what it's called when it's like black and white filters are turned on and the colors are adjusted. <laughs> um, and even just the impact that he made on like the American Western. I mean, uh, uh, it, it seems kind of like a strangely internationally ironic, I guess, of that era that like one of the biggest uh, sources that American directors were, were taking crib notes or even Italian directors for that matter, were taking crib notes from to establish and advance the Western genre was so rooted in the stories, archetypes, and um, frameworks that Kurosawa laid out like just before that era or or, or concurrent to that era. And how he was able to tap into universal ideas. Yeah. um, Of like, you know, he wanted to pick Macbeth because there were so many similarities between feudal Scotland and feudal Japan. Mm -hmm. Times in the highlands compared to like rural parts of Japan and the fog and the landscape. So... I feel like he was a big takeaway for me is like, how do you tap into universal ideas and fuck those people who said in like the fifties and sixties that this isn't Shakespeare. You need the language for Shakespeare. That is like the dumbest fucking argument I think I've ever heard. <laughs> my, by far my favorite cinematic Shakespeare adaptation by far. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, for sure. And there's not a lick of English in it, <laughs> <laughs> but it's all there. And I think that's, that's, what's incredible. Yeah. Well, we've gone on for a very long time, which I love. This is, it's great yeah. to have a theme where we can just really dig deep um, into these films. And so I hope you, our listeners, are uh, enjoying these episodes as well. Uh, any final thoughts about Kurosawa or, um, I was going to say, Blood of Throne, Throne of Blood? It's either, yeah, Game of Blood, Raining Blood, Throne. <laughs> I have so many iterations of what this movie is. I'm sorry, Kurosawa. <laughs> I would say um, absolutely check it out and check out his other work as well. Um, 
I've only seen a handful, but uh, every, because it's such a, a Connor, as you've covered, such a vast catalog and such a prolific artist. Um, but everything I've seen has been great so far. So, um, yeah, I think he, he only has room to impress. Mm-hmm. Let us email us. Let us know your thoughts if you end up watching uh, Throne of Blood. Uh, Butter with that podcast at gmail.com. Butter with that Facebook, Instagram, Butter with that one on Twitter. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts, what you think about these director deep dives. And is there a director that you would want us to do a deep dive, a work mm. that should get the two plus hour or two hour Butter with that treatment? I'm not doing Troy Duffy though. Nobody, Boondock Saints fans, I'm sorry. We're not doing Troy Duffy. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I was like, who is Troy Duffy? Exactly. <laughs> Well, be sure to stick around for next week um, and the following week as we round out the second half of our director's choice theme. Um, two movies I'm very excited to dive deep and to talk about. One movie I've seen a lot. The other one I just watched for the first time. So, And with that, uh, have a good uh, good evening or good morning or a good dusk, wherever you are. Yay. <laughs> a good dusk. You know, that's, oh, a, good that's a good parting. <laughs>